Welcome to the Absolutes. This is Professor Greg Reichberg speaking to you from a lakeside farm deep in the forest near the small town of Orang, Sweden, some 30 kilometers from the Norwegian border. The calm and beauty of the place make it the perfect setting to discuss the absolutes. I am a philosopher specializing on matters of war and peace. Originally from New York, my home base for the last 20 years has been Oslo, Norway. Several years ago, I'd been at work for a couple of hours when I received a jarring telephone call. It was my daughter, Bethany. A close friend of hers had just committed suicide. I suggested to Bethany that we meet up to talk, and that we did a couple of hours later for lunch. And in that conversation, we talked about Well, the meaning of life. Why someone would think that life was no longer worth living. And what makes life worth living? What is it that makes life worthwhile? Where do we find meaning? And in what do we find meaning? And that conversation with Bethany became the first of many about these and similar questions. And from our conversation the idea for this podcast emerged. Bethany is now a jazz vocalist. The musical interludes you hear in the background are hers, in conjunction with her partner, Braga Peterson. I felt I could relate to the struggle of Bethany's friend, the one who had so tragically killed himself. I still remember when I was 20 years old. I was sitting in the backyard of my family home outside of New York. It was a beautiful spring day, the most lovely spring day, almost the most lovely I can remember. Everything was green, the sky was blue, it was warm but not hot, the flowers were ablaze, the neighborhood was quiet, the sun was shining, but I felt sad because I was troubled by this thought. What if all of this passes away? What if I should die? But not only the possibility that I might die, but the possibility, some would say the inevitability, that not just me, but everything around me, the beauty that I saw, that would pass away. The people I love, they too eventually would pass away. The knowledge that I had gained, the truths that I had perceived, would they too pass away? The love that I had experienced, would it too pass away? I became troubled by this thought because. If all of this passes away, why live? Why continue? I told this story many years later to a group of students when I was a professor in Washington, D.C. And after recounting the story, one of the students said to me, it sounds like you were depressed. And my response to the student was, yes, perhaps. But 
there are some things worth being depressed over. And at that time, without being able to name it, I had stumbled on what the philosophers call the problem of radical contingency. Can we conceive of a world? Is it possible for there to be a world where everything passes away and nothing endures? Is it possible for there to be a world entirely composed of things that are contingent? Things that cannot be. Must there be something in the world that is of such nature that it does not pass away? A thing that is, or things that are not contingent but necessary, meaning they cannot not be. What I encountered that day, sitting in the backyard on that warm spring day, was the question of the absolute. There must be something, some center, that gives our life meaning. There must be something for the sake of which we do all that we do that for the sake of which everything else is done. That's the absolute. Individuals have absolutes. So too do whole societies. For us, individually and collectively, there is always at bottom a fundamental reason for the things that we do that to which we refer everything that we do. Often the absolute, my absolute, your absolute, our absolute, remains largely unconscious. And it is most often only in times of crisis, sometimes a a physical crisis, such as an illness, or sometimes a spiritual crisis, that we're challenged to think about that for the sake of which we are doing what we're doing. All societies can be divided on their conception of what's absolute, their conception of what is fundamental. Whole societies, of course individuals, but even whole societies can be divided on what's fundamental and that which is not subject to compromise. The great debate in the United States about Donald Trump is ultimately a debate about what the nation is for, what values lie at its core. Similar debates are happening in other places, in Israel, in Hong Kong, in Iran, and Britain with Brexit, to name a few. I would venture that the question of the absolute and our respective visions of the absolute. I would venture that this question is not wholly subjective. I think we should be open to the possibility that there are good and bad answers to the absolute. The good or bad answers to the question, what is absolute? 
we can be mistaken about the absolute. We can place our trust, our confidence in an absolute that is not truly absolute. We can misidentify the absolute. The medieval philosopher-theologian Thomas Aquinas made the question of the absolute the starting point of his reflection about human happiness. He raised the question, in what does happiness consist? And in response, he notes that different contenders have been put forward. Contenders for the absolute. Different contenders, different versions of where our happiness ultimately lies. Some philosophers and ordinary human beings have thought that happiness consists in bodily pleasure. Think of Jeffrey Epstein, who's been much in the news, the wealthy financier who preyed on young women and ultimately killed himself when confronted with his misdeeds. It seems, from what one can read in the paper, that he sought wealth, but above all, he sought bodily pleasure, in this case, sexual pleasures. And the wealth was interesting to him, first and foremost, in view of the, uh, the pleasures it could procure. Other people have sought happiness, have sought their absolute in adulation, in fame, in being loved by the crowd. Others have sought their happiness in power, in exercising influence, for good or bad. Others have sought their happiness in knowledge, others in friendship. So Aquinas runs through some of the possible contenders for the absolute that our happiness consists in. And he tries to show how each of these contenders has its attraction. But each potentially can fall short of providing true happiness. Aquinas' solution is to say that true happiness can consist only in union with a being that is infinite. And for Aquinas, this being that is infinite, that being is God. One may or may not agree with Aquinas' conclusion, but his method of analysis is, I think, highly pertinent to us today. This comes out most clearly in his discussion of wealth. He distinguishes between natural and artificial wealth. Natural wealth is the money, the resources, the financial resources, that one needs to meet one's basic needs. Aquinas says that no one seeks their happiness in natural wealth, for the simple reason that natural wealth is not sought for its own sake, but it's a means to an end. It's a means to having enough food, a roof over one's head, basic security. But artificial wealth has no inherent limit. The sort of wealth that we can seek beyond what's required to satisfy our basic needs has no end in sight. The more one has, the more one can have and get or seek to get. I'll paraphrase a few lines from Thomas Aquinas. 
The more perfectly the sovereign, all-encompassing good is possessed, the more it is loved. Whereas in the desire for wealth, artificial wealth, the contrary is the case. For when we already possess the things we obtain through wealth, we despise them. They no longer seem so good to us. And we seek others and we seek more. Thus we read in the Bible, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. So artificial wealth is attractive because it meets our desire for what's infinite. It seems to meet that desire. So we find it attractive. But then it never fully meets the desire because it turns out that what we possess through wealth is one thing after another. And each individual thing that we gain never perfectly is enough. And so we want another. And that other that we get is still not enough. And then we want another. And so our thirst for what's infinite, the infinite, that absolute good in which our happiness alone can reside, is never fully met. The question of the absolute, identifying sources of fulfillment, of happiness, is a crucial matter for each individual human being. I think no long argument need be made on that score. But as I noted earlier, it's also a fundamental question for whole societies. And I think if one surveys the burning issues that confront us today in the national but also international arena, the highly charged political issues, the intractable problems, with which our political leadership must deal. These problems, too, engage issues of the absolute. Think of the tensions currently displayed between the United States and Iran. In many respects, these tensions, while overtly about politics and about uh, jockeying for power in the Middle East. But at the end of the day, the conflict, the tensions are also about how to organize ourselves in society. What society's for? So even international relations, maybe I could say especially international relations, is fraught with questions about the absolute. Consider also the enormous attention that's been paid to issues associated with politically oriented religious extremism. Much of the discussion has been about what's termed uh, radical Islam or militant Islam. But of course we know that there are similar trends within other religious traditions as well. There's been much discussion about Hindu nationalism, settler movement, 
in Israel, etc. Consider for a moment the group that calls itself the Islamic State. During the period when they controlled territory in Iraq and Syria, what they were about was creating what they thought was an ideal society. A society tightly structured around an absolute. Their conception of what's absolute. And all competing conceptions were systematically eliminated, or rather, those who professed competing conceptions were eliminated. What I find so striking about the attempt made by ISIS, or the so-called Islamic State, to organize their own caliphate, their own community, was how, in affirming an absolute, they were so intent on reducing as far as possible the domain of the relative. Whenever we affirm an absolute, we say that something is absolute. By the same token, we carve out a domain of what's relative. We recognize that there are things that are not absolute. And in fact, the things that are not absolute are open for discussion, open for dialogue, open for compromise. The more we expand the domain of what's absolute, the more we minimize the domain of the relative, the domain of what reasonable people can disagree about, the domain of what we can compromise over. So, in taking up the discussion of the absolute, by the same token, we need to talk about what isn't absolute, what's relative, what we can comfortably disagree about, and what we can compromise over. So in this podcast, our goal is to explore the absolutes. Think of this as a journey together. A journey into reflection about the absolute and the relative, and where to draw the line between them. Thank you.